You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this event. <clears throat> My name is Ed Laws. I'm a senior research officer in the politics and governance program at the Overseas Development Institute. <clears throat> ODI is very happy to be co-hosting today's discussion uh, with Cordaid and the World Justice Project. Um, so a, uh, a few quick words of um, introduction. Um, the title for today's event is uh, Justice for All and Afghanistan's Future. Um, I think it's very clear to everyone that the country is at a really pivotal moment. Um, the US peace deal with the Taliban earlier this year has paved the way for troop withdrawal. Um, Intra-Afghan peace negotiations have recently started in Doha. And at the same time, international donors are preparing for a major pledging conference in Geneva in November. Now, that's an event that will really shape the scope and the scale of international assistance for the next four years. Of course, this is all taking place against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. All of this means that access to justice is really more crucial than ever. If you don't have stable institutions for resolving disputes, if you don't have fairness in the way the rule of law is applied, if policing and security is unreliable, we know that any peace deal is likely to be fragile. We know that life for many Afghan citizens will remain challenging. Um, so we brought together a really great panel today to talk through some of this, and we'll focus on three main areas. Firstly, challenges and opportunities in the current context for improving access to justice. Secondly, what donors should be prioritizing in the November pledging conference. And finally, the role of justice and the rule of law in securing peace and security in the mid to long term. So let me introduce our panelists. Uh, Nagina Khalili is the head of the General Directorate of the Prosecutor's Office for Combating Violence Against Women within the Afghan government. She's originally from Gore in central Afghanistan and was the first female prosecutor for that province. Cecilia Weigers is the Dutch ambassador to Afghanistan. Cecilia has held various senior diplomatic and policy roles. As part of her previous work with the Dutch foreign ministry, she had oversight of police reform in Kunduns in northern Afghanistan. Amy Greskevich is the director for criminal justice research at the World Justice Project. Amy leads the WJP's thematic research on global criminal justice indicators and also leads on country-specific research in Afghanistan. Masood Karahel is the director and co-founder of the Liaison Office in Kabul, um, a research, peace-building and livelihoods NGO. Uh, Mr. Karahel has a great deal of experience working across both customary and state institutions to promote good governance, access to justice and livelihood improvements. And finally, Tita Maya is the director for the South Asia unit at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Finland. Tita brings a wealth of experience of working in senior roles in diplomacy and public service across a number of countries and organizations, including the UN and the European Commission. I'll be directing most of the discussion, but we will be taking questions from the audience. So please use the chat box to raise questions for our panel. 
Um, we will be live tweeting with the hashtag, hashtag justice for all. Um, so please engage with us on social media and please note the event is being recorded. Um, so to kick things off, I'll hand over to Amy first, who is going to set the scene by walking us through some of the findings of a recent major survey on justice and rule of law in Afghanistan that the World Justice Project has produced. Amy, over to you. Thank you, Ed, for your introduction and for moderating the discussion today. And thank you also to my fellow panelists and to Cordate and the Overseas Development Institute for hosting this important virtual dialogue event. I'm excited to join the discussion on behalf of the World Justice Project, which is an independent multidisciplinary organization working to advance the rule of law around the world. One way the WJP works to build and support a global movement for the rule of law is by collecting and analyzing original rule of law data. As part of this effort, we've collected survey data in Afghanistan from a number of different sources since 2013. This summer, we released our most recent Rule of Law in Afghanistan annual report, uh, which summarizes rule of law as it is experienced in practice in Afghanistan through data we've collected from the general public, in-country legal practitioners, as well as individuals incarcerated in the Afghan prison system. As you can imagine, there are a number of interesting takeaways from this work, but there are perhaps two findings from the data we've collected uh, from a nationally representative sample of the general public that I think provide a solid overview of the justice landscape for our discussion today. And the first finding is that Afghans report low levels of trust in the courts. We asked the general public a series of questions about how much trust they have in different institutions. And in 2019, courts were viewed as the least trusted institu institution, with more than half of Afghans saying that they had little or no trust in courts. And the second finding is that justice problems are ubiquitous in Afghanistan and that many Afghans who experience uh, these problems aren't able to access help. To explore this finding, I've prepared one slide, which you'll, you'll uh, see on the screen, that summarizes the paths followed by Afghans to deal with their everyday civil and administrative justice problems. The WJP wanted to research the ways that ordinary uh, people around the world navigate legal problems and developed a series of questions to explore the most common legal problems, legal capability, sources of help, as well as the dispute resolution process. And these questions were incorporated into our survey to the general public and collected in Afghanistan in 2018 for the Global Insights on Access to Justice publication, which was the first ever effort to capture comparable data on legal needs and access to civil justice uh, on a global scale. And looking to the data from Afghanistan that you see on the screen here, we find that 61% of Afghans have experienced a legal problem in the last two years, and that these disputes uh, were most commonly related to land, housing, um, and family. Although 69% uh, that experienced a problem said they knew where to get information and advice, only 52% felt that they could actually get all of the expert help that they wanted. And then ultimately only 38% uh, that had a dispute said that they were able to access help. And unsurprisingly for those that did access help, um, it largely came from informal mechanisms. Afghans that sought help um, frequently turned to family members or friends as well as religious and community leaders. And finally, nearly half of Afghans that experienced a problem reported that they suffered some sort of hardship as a result 
indicating that these everyday justice problems really impact day-to-day -day lives. Globally, we know that the process of accessing justice can look very different for women. The information on the screen isn't showing um, results cut by gender. Uh, we haven't fully analyzed findings by gender yet, but based on pre a preliminary uh, comparison that we've done looking at experiences of men and women in Afghanistan, we found that although a smaller percentage of women reported that they'd experienced a problem, um, the women that did experience a problem were more likely um, to say that they didn't know where to get advice, that they believed um, that it, it was unlikely they would have a fair outcome. Um, and they were less likely to say that they got all of the help that they needed and were ultimately able to access help. So as a general picture, although the um, justice problems in Afghanistan are widespread, Afghans and in particular Afghan women often aren't accessing help to solve these problems. And when Afghans do seek help, it's most often through informal mechanisms and uh, not via lawyers or courts. This reality combined with the lack of trust in formal courts really speaks to the importance of continued commitments to work toward achieving SDG 16 uh, and to realize justice for all Afghans in their contexts. Um, with that, I'm eager to hear from my fellow panelists, so I will uh, end my initial remarks here. Thank you so much, Amy, for, <clears throat> for a great initial um, framing. Um, Nagina, if I could turn to you next. Um, so Amy finished by speaking about uh, some of the challenges in women's access to justice. Um, in your role, you have particular oversight of gender-based violence and access to justice for women and girls um, with respect to formal government policy. Um, so perhaps I could ask you to um, speak about what you see as the opportunities and challenges for reform in these areas and how do these relate to the current priorities of the Afghan government? I see we may have had a connection problem with Nagina. Um, oh. Okay, let's give some time for Nagina to, uh, to deal with her connection issues. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps then I can turn uh, to Masood. Um, so Masood, we, we know that um, uh, uh, a key structural feature of the justice sector in Afghanistan is legal pluralism, right? So the coexistence of formal uh, or statutory courts, Taliban courts, and then customary and informal providers. And we know that there are different interpretations of what justice means across these different channels, uh, different understandings of what it represents. I know that you and your organization have a huge amount of experience of working with customary and informal providers in particular. Uh, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about how you see their role in addressing um, some of the priorities uh, that, that Amy spoke about highlighted in the World Justice Project survey. Uh, thank you, Ed. Um, I would just like to uh, start by saying that uh, one thing that we need to understand is that informal justice, we cannot just look at it in from the perspective of a justice provision only. Basically, informal justice in Afghanistan historically and even till pre present has been basically the relationship between the state and the periphery or, or the Afghan population. 
And as the gap between the state and periphery has widened, so has the mistrust. Um, and therefore, when there is lack of, as Amy said, there's lack of trust, this also leads to more people turning towards uh, informal justice providers. Um, in that context, uh, I would say that um, working with informal justice provider has been very much ad hoc. Uh, in, in many years, they have been completely ignored, uh, given that most of, let's say, if we take women population in rural Afghanistan who have difficulty even uh, leaving their homes or those who have been uh, facing family issues or other kinds of issues, but they were seeking justice, it's very hard for them to reach to a formal justice institution, which may be many kilometers away and very difficult for them to access. Uh, secondly, um, that's for, I think, informal justice providers as agents have been less looked upon on how they can be utilized, especially in assisting them uh, to help uh, women which may be needing uh, such kind of uh, uh, assistance when it comes to legal issues or trying to seek justice. Therefore, uh, in my view, um, informal justice system has many problems uh, like the formal justice system it also suffers from nepotism and also in many cases uh, corruption issue cases as well but nonetheless it's still as a primary area where um, uh, people mostly turn to uh, and therefore i think working with informal justice providers especially from the aspect of capacity or those informal justice providers which could assist specifically cases of women, has been, in my view, under-investigated and less worked upon. Uh, at the same time, informal justice providers, in my view, could be an interesting bridge, uh, especially we also have uh, informal justice providers which are women, uh, which are called, uh, called as white hair or women in rural communities that could be an interesting asset. How do we find these women, how to work with them, and how they could assist in bringing up the cases of women, even if it's linked to the informal justice providers or bringing those cases up to the formal system? So that kind of a liaison or a bridge, in my view, uh, still doesn't exist. And most of the Afghan women in rural Afghanistan or even women in urban centers, for that matter, have been completely neglected when it comes to this issue. Uh, most of uh, legal aid or other work done by, let's say, by us through our coordinate program, which we did for five years, we were able to assist in this area, but we were only able to do this in five regional centers. Afghanistan has 34 provinces and different dynamics exist across the country. So it does require uh, a very much, we need to look at from case by case, from region to region, and how the dynamics are. In some regions, informal justice system is quite strong, in others is quite rather weak which is then taken over by Sharia or Taliban courts. So we cannot have a one fixed solution for all of it. I think each Afghan region uh, represents a different dynamic. Uh, I will stop here uh, so that I'm not uh, going over my time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Masood. Uh, I think we are still uh, behind the scenes working to connect Nagina, um, but we hope she'll be with us soon. Um, so let's, uh, let's invite some um, thoughts on the role of international actors in this space. Um, Cecilia, the Netherlands has a long history of supporting rule of law and justice uh, and women's rights in particular in Afghanistan. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Dutch priorities for justice in the upcoming pledging round uh, and what do you see as the main opportunities for progress in this space? 
Right. Uh, good afternoon to you all. Uh, thanks, Ed, and thanks uh, to the team who organized uh, this conference. It's a very timely moment to organize this conference uh, for us as well. As diplomats and also interpreters of our foreign policy, we look at a wider perspective. And so also when it comes to promoting justice and rule of law, we look at this moment, for instance, at the three different tracks. What is going on in Doha, the negotiations between the two different parties, and also, of course, the upcoming withdrawal of NATO, and of course, the pledging conference in Geneva. Um, rule of law, security, stability, it's all connected. And in all three different tracks, uh, this theme is very essential. So for the Dutch at this moment, it's a question of continuity. As you said, Ed, we are here already since uh, some, some years, almost 20 years now. Uh, and for us, uh, together with our international uh, colleagues here, it's of utmost importance that we don't lose what has been gained. Um, when you talk about rule of law, human rights, and women's rights. Because in the end, I think uh, for all of us, whether you are in civil society, government, or uh, an international partner, uh, and also part of the government, of course, of Afghanistan, peace is the ultimate objective that we share. And that is, of course, connected with security and stability. And for us, just an inclusive peace uh, is the ultimate aim. And that's pretty complicated, how to get there. So for us as the Dutch, uh, it's vital also to have the interest of the victims uh, in our minds. Victims uh, of all sides uh, of the conflict, they need to be heard. And uh, we have been uh, working with UNAMA and also with like-minded to see how we can reinforce Afghan voices uh, who um, advocate this approach. What's also important for us, and I think many uh, with us, uh, are the women, of course. Um, Amy mentioned it already, and also other speakers, is that uh, women are, of course, victims of uh, systematic discrimination. Uh, they have unmet uh, justice needs, and uh, they are often also the buffer in a conflict, suffer from loss of family members, uh, loss of income, etc., etc. So they need to be included, and that means that. Uh, just and inclusive means for us uh, that we also have extra attention uh, for women's needs and rights. What does this mean very practically for the Netherlands? What do we do uh, and what are we going to pledge? Um, well, it looks like uh, we will uh, keep uh, the same uh, focus for the coming years. And that's very important, I think, to provide that stability as an um, international partner to Afghanistan. Uh, we, of course, work with civil society, um, uh, such as CORDIT, of course, um, uh, CIVIC, but also UN organizations like uh, UN Habitat and UNAMA, but also uh, the Human Rights Commission, the European Institute for Peace, HALO, UNMAS. There are so many uh, actors that contribute uh, to uh, better stability, security and uh, greater rule of law. What I think also on an on a experience note is that coordination of development partners of Afghanistan is key. We do so many different things, whether it's politically, diplomatically, but also in the provinces, it's very important uh, that we learn from each other and that we tie our experiences together. Uh, in all our endeavors, of course, uh, uh, women's position is important. The Netherlands has been very active on uh, uh, the implementation also of uh, the UN Resolution 3025, and gender, of course, is always mainstreamed. 
And as uh, Amy rightly said, justice is part of the SDGs. Um, our own minister, uh, Sigrid Kaag, has been very active also in supporting the report uh, that has been published. Um, I would like it, uh, to leave it at that. Um, I think what is also important to, uh, uh, to stress is that uh, if you want to promote rule of law and justice in Afghanistan, it's not only about programs and collaboration, but it's also about diplomacy. And I think that's our key job here. Thank you. Cecilia, thank you so much. Uh, I think we have Nagina back with us now. Uh, Nagina, can you hear me? Okay, yes. I think we're still dealing with you. No, no, I'm hearing you. Uh, okay, um, let's, let's, give, let's give this a go. Nagina, a great deal of the conversation so far has, has already centered around uh, the thematic area, which I know is, is a key uh, oversight area for you, for you and your role with the Afghan government. Um, uh, access to justice for women and girls. Um, uh, but I also know that you have particular oversight over gender-based violence. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about where you see some of the challenges in this area, some of the opportunities for reform um, from, your, from your government standpoint. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, good, uh, good morning to those who are living in USA and also good afternoon to those who are living in Kabul and uh, UK, I think. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this conference. I want to say Afghanistan has achieved significant judicial reforms addressing women and vulnerable groups on the uh, recent years. There are tangible uh, opportunities in this regard. The first one is the legal ground. Afghanistan has a constitution uh, entitling women and equal rights, equal access to justice. And also Afghanistan has signed certain international treaties uh, that making the government committed to abide with its commitment to women rights in the justice process like CEDA and also Declaration of Human Rights, ICPR and others. EU laws and provisions are a safeguards for women prosecutors and also judges. The second one is the institutional grounds. There are pro-women uh, uh, pro rights institutions actively protecting women rights in Afghanistan and the social and judicial uh, areas, including Human Rights Commission, EJUS, um, uh, the Ministry of Justice, Ministry of uh, Women, and also provincial issues and elimination of violence against women and anti-harassment laws. The, but, uh, the challenges in this regard is that uh, now in Afghanistan we had 21% uh, of women prosecutors in attorney general office. They are working at now, and also we had uh, women judges in Afghanistan also, and we had 30, in 34 uh, provinces of Afghanistan we had uh, the elimination of violence against women prosecution office, and also we had a special courts for elimination of violence in, uh, uh, against women. So, and uh, we had uh, laws in this regards about the elimination of violence against women law, anti-harassment law, and also um, uh, criminal code, and uh, we had CEDA, we had uh, ICCPR, and the other treatment that Afghanistan uh, modified it. So, uh, the big challenge for uh, this regard is, I think, that 
uh, there is uh, some problems in the areas that is not under control of the government, like uh, prove uh, that province are under war. So we see uh, some informal justice in some province of Afghanistan, like war, like uh, Oruzgan, and like Faryab, and etc. We see um, the government or the leak of uh, the leak of uh, rule of law in some uh, districts of Afghanistan. And the other problem is that uh, there is not public awareness about the women rights in Afghanistan. So the women who are living in district, in villages, they don't know about their um, the rights and they don't know how to open a case and also how to uh, go to the justice system. So this is the challenges that we had now, but I think the reform can be to increase the uh, public I'm going to draw you to a close there now because we will definitely have opportunities to speak about uh, um, recommendations for reform strategies as the conversation goes on. But but thank you so much for, for setting the scene for us. Um, Tito, if I could uh, turn to you now. Um, Finland is co-hosting the uh, pledging conference. Um, so I wonder if you could talk us through uh, how you see justice uh, in the context of the overall agenda um, is this going to be a major area of focus um, and perhaps a, a sense of the kinds of conversations that you've been having uh, with, uh, with your counterparts uh, about justice in the lead up to the event? Well, thank you so much, everyone, all the fellow panelists. It's truly an honor to be part of this panel and part of this debate and all the listeners and viewers as well. Hello from Helsinki. So, um, of course, just to set some parameters first uh, in, in terms of development policies and priorities for Finland in general, why we kind of like took the decision at the first place to be part of um, hosting the conference together with the Afghan government and UNAMA. Um, major role was played with the fact that, of course, uh, access to justice, rule of law and democracy are kind of like a cornerstones of our development policy in, in Finland as well. Um, I would say setting some of the parameters for the conference as well. Uh, fighting corruption is obviously one of them, and that is one of the key elements, as has been described by my learned colleagues. Um, also in terms of uh, providing equal just, justice for everyone, uh, that, um, that there is a true fight for. Uh, against corruption throughout the Afghan government, supported by the donors. And of course, it is also uh, a fact that only when the citizens can trust the justice system, as has been described by several panelists before me, do they actually bring their case uh, uh, to, to courts. Um, and it was especially descriptive how Amy described at the beginning of the survey that they have conducted the, you know, like the challenges that are facing the current system in Afghanistan. And yet the previous panelists that spoke before me uh, brought up the fact that uh, already quite a bit has been done compared to uh, previous years. So all of these issues will be looked upon uh, as part of the conference preparations. Um, this, is, this also applies to uh, law enforcement. Uh, 
if people can trust kind of like the police force uh, to function Im uh, impartially, it is very difficult to uh, trust the justice system. But now I am very happy to turn to the topic of the actual conference. Uh, we have a uh, conference team here in Helsinki um, that is working hand in hand with the Afghan government uh, and with UNAMA on some of the um, parameters of the conference. So uh, the conference itself uh, is scheduled to take place 23rd to 24th uh, of November in Geneva. Of course, parts of it, or many parts of it, I would say, will be conducted in a virtual format due to the COVID-19. But nevertheless, uh, Swiss have, uh, the Swiss have kindly uh, over offered their hospitality in terms of the venue again. Uh, of course, a new data architecture will be built on strengthened governance and monitoring. The monitoring and the fight against corruption is, are one of the key elements of the documents. More focus will be put on monitoring progress of key reforms areas that support peace and development, redu reduce poverty equally, and improve the welfare of all the citizens. Of course, as the ambassador, the Dutch ambassador just stated, uh, we live interesting times because as we speak, not only is the conference being prepared, but also the peace talks are being held in, in, in Doha simultaneously. This will bring a much more political element to the conference. Uh, that is a slightly um, unsimilar situation to previous uh, conferences. And central teams of the conference, they are organized under three pillars. Uh, there is a state building, market building, and peace building. And these include issues such as institution building and good governance, anti-corruption, private sector development, and upholding human rights, including the rights of women, children, and marginalized groups. There is a clear... Tito, if I can ask you to, to wrap up uh, just in the next sort of 15 seconds or so, that would sure. be great, thank you. So I can ensure you that the civil society participation will be also at the very core of the conference preparations and I'm very happy to answer any of the questions that you might have in that regard. Thank you. Great, thank you so much and apologies for, for having to interrupt there. Um, Amy, if I could come back to you, um, you gave us a, a really great sort of snapshot of the current context uh, based on your most recent survey, but the World Justice Project uh, has been conducting these surveys for the past six years or so. Um, so I wonder if we look back over that time span, what are some of the um, some of the broader sorts of trends you've been seeing? Where has progress uh, on access to justice been made over time? Um, where do you think we're seeing setbacks? Where do you think we're seeing stasis uh, or, or stagnation? Um, and then I suppose in light of the discussions we're having around the pledging conference, what are some of the takeaways from those trends uh, for international actors as they go into this major conference? 
Sure. When we look back at the data we've collected in Afghanistan over the years, I think the picture really is a bit mixed and it depends on the period of time you focus on and also the topic that you explore. Um, if we were to look at broader rule of law trends and areas where we've seen progress that we featured in the report, um, one area I could point to would be that a larger percentage of Afghans believed that the media could express opinions against the government and that the media can expose cases of corruption in 2019 um, compared to when we began polling in, in 2013. Um, but perceptions of political freedoms haven't uh, changed or improved much over time. And if we look to some of the justice related questions that we've been exploring today, there are a number of areas where we haven't seen much improvement over time or where we're actually seeing declines. I noted earlier that the courts were the least trusted institution uh, covered in our survey. And this was a finding when we administered our first survey to the general public in 2013. And it's something we've captured every year our survey has been administered since. Um, between 2013 and 2019, the percentage of Afghans that said that they trusted the courts has actually declined slightly. And we didn't capture this only in the question about courts. Uh, between 2013 and 2019, trust has really declined in all of the categories we covered, including trust in local government officials, national government officials, um, the police, as well as trust in other people living in Afghanistan. Um, we also ask Afghans how many authorities they believe to be involved in corrupt practices in different government institutions and judges were perceived as the most corrupt in 2019, uh, with more than half of Afghans saying that they believed all or most were actually involved in corrupt practices. And here again, the percentage that believe judges were corrupt increased between 2013 and 2019, indicating that judges are now viewed as more um, corrupt. Um, if we look at some of these questions over a shorter period of time, um, in particular over just the last one year period, we do see small improvements in the level of trust in courts as well as in the perception of judges. It's too early to say whether these improvements will be sustained, um, but these incremental improvements are important. And I think they point to a key takeaway for the upcoming pledging conference. Uh, and that is that improving rule of law and justice issues can be a very slow process. Uh, and these efforts um, often occur with, um, in combination with setbacks and also go through periods of, of stagnation. Um, the pandemic poses a huge challenge to the progress that has already been made, um, as my fellow panelists have pointed out, and addressing rule of law issues related to the delivery and accessibility of justice, uh, corruption and transparency will be even more vital as Afghan navigates the pandemic recovery process as well as the peace process. Great, thank you so much, Amy. Um, you mentioned the um, justice and rule of law challenges that are being exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, of course, we know that, that since COVID-19 hit, um, globally reports of domestic violence have, have really surged. Um, some have referred to this as a, as a shadow pandemic. Um, Nagina, if I could turn to you, um, are there particular um, mechanisms or strategies that have been introduced in Afghanistan to try to address this um, that you think should be receiving more support in the pledging round? Um, thank you. Um, we are still in middle uh, COVID-19 pandemic and we have to adopt as uh, accordingly. We also have the surge of domestic violence in Afghanistan. 
and cities Afghanistan is trying, uh, trying to apply remote justice system and mechanism to address uh, corona influence environment. On the other hand, Afghanistan government has initiated to accommodate law and procedures of remote justice to address on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic challenges. And uh, as you know, uh, the Supreme Court of Afghanistan has procedure, uh, online procedure for the cases, uh, for all cases, not for um, violence against women, for, but all criminal cases, uh, they, they are trying to apply that. The EGU also, and uh, they are trying to uh, implement online uh, system for uh, COVID-19. But uh, during the COVID-19, um, our offices was office or was not uh, off. We worked that, and also as you know, last year almost 2,700 uh, we resolved uh, elimination of uh, uh, domestic violence cases. So uh, we are trying to apply the online system for the cases as well. Thank you very much, uh, Nagina. Masood, um, I'd like to keep on this question of sort of approaches and tools. Um, my sense has been that when you look at um, sort of typical international support for access to justice, um, a lot of programming is still centered around um, sort of quite traditional large scale um, uh, training or capacity building programs. I just wondered from, from within the NGO world, are there particular sort of more innovative approaches or tools um, that you think are particularly promising in the current moment uh, and that you would like to see reflected in, uh, in donor support? Masood, I think you're on, you're on mute. There you go. Okay. Um, uh, I think I before getting into that, I think when we talk about pandemic uh, security, I think we should also not forget that when we're talking about peace talks, uh, there's also the question of political uncertainty, which sort of also has an impact on the justice sector as well. Uh, so that, I think it's a combination of factors which creates uh, even further mistrust. Uh, coming to the programs, um, from our own experience, I would say programs that create awareness. Uh, already Amy spoke about media. I think this could be an ideal area where Afghans broadly get an idea of, uh, you know, uh, if there are vulnerable groups like women or this online system uh, um, uh, that our colleague Ms. Nagina spoke about. Uh, these kind of more awareness programs, which we have tried in provinces with um, uh, with coordinated funding and support of Dutch Foreign Ministry, were quite useful, especially with local media in local centers, so people have an idea of um, uh, how to approach the formal justice system, especially on issues like, let's say, vulnerable cases like women. Uh, this kind of an awareness is a very limited understanding of formal justice system and the different um, services that it provides. So that, for that matter, I would say, we, have, we need to look at how we use social media, FM radios, and, and, and broader media generally. Uh, also, we need to look at programs which brings community closer to the formal system. In general, as uh, Amy had mentioned that, you know, Afghans have a low trust. I think there's also people want to stay away from the formal system. I think getting closer to formal system means uh, time, resources uh, being lost. So how do we build that confidence? So programs which sort of creates a more dialogue 
bringing the two systems closer together, even informal justice providers or women groups or actors which can play a role uh, in sort of having dialogue with local courts, with local AGO offices and prosecutors and so on. So we need more platforms where such an interaction could happen uh, either through complaint boxes or where formal justice providers answer Q&A to people's local problems. So this, in my view, will be very necessary for building confidence. If we see informal justice providers in rural Afghanistan having access and insecurity being another key challenge where a formal justice system is also being targeted by armed insurgent groups, both judges, courts, have been a frequent target uh, across Afghanistan and we have numerous cases. So while our colleague uh, from AGO spoke about reforms and improvement, I think one key challenge has been security, which is very can be closely associated with security. So for that matter, in my view, how do we identify informal justice providers that could be sort of used as a linkage to the formal system, especially when dealing with cases of um, you know women or others that could be brought in or channeled through them to the formal system. This could be, they have more access to rural Afghanistan or areas which are out of government control. So this could be an, another in, innovative area of how do we create those linkages. This brings me to the second point of programs that specifically look, there is already a linkage or an, an informal relationship between formal and informal systems in the provinces. The question, one of the things that's under discussion is a reconciliation law, which is still as a draft with the Afghan government. I think this reconciliation law will give more um, scrutiny to how the informal justice system works and how it is linked to the formal justice system, and especially provincial courts. So in my view, uh, linking of the formal and informal, one key area will be looking at the reconciliation law uh, that if it's approved by the Afghan parliament and ratified by the Afghan cabinet, could be an interesting um, a medium of linking these two. Uh, the third would be uh, mechanisms that create an oversight of the formal system. Earlier we heard about media sort of doing investigative journalism and sort of highlighting corruption, misuse of power and so on. So I think the more we bring the formal system under scrutiny, it will be very necessary, but not limiting it only to formal system, but also cases of uh, abuse and misuse in the informal system, including those uh, that are done by the Taliban courts. Uh, I think sometimes there's a picture painted in Afghanistan that the Taliban courts are very swift, they provide justice uh, very quick and people appreciate them and approach them. That is to a large extent happening uh, on the ground, but also we need to look at how uh, the case, uh, how are these, uh, um, uh, these decisions being taken by the local population. There is uh, still the information is very black and white. So in my view, we need more research uh, sort of looking at these areas and also um, um, uh, as uh, Ms. Uh, Nagina highlighted, different provinces of Afghanistan have different issues and I think uh, sort of comparing and, and sort of not looking at only black and white, we need a bit of more comparative studies and, and sort of uh, designing more localized strategies for each region. I'll just give you a simple example. Southeastern Afghanistan has a very strong customary justice system. Whereas if you compare that to southern Afghanistan, uh, customary justice is rather weak and your dominance of uh, Taliban courts or more Sharia um, uh, decision making. So that's how different parts of Afghanistan differ in this area and we cannot have one single strategy. But at, at this point, I would say, how do we 
create that link between the formal and the informal. As I said in, in the beginning uh, when I started, was that informal justice is also seen as a link between the state and uh, the, to reduce the gap. And especially when there's political uncertainty. Thank you. Yes, okay, I'll I'm stop gonna, here. I'm gonna jump in there. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, we are, we are running to a, to a fairly tight schedule. Um, Cecilia Tita, if I could ask a, a joint question for you both. Um, so building on Masood's reflections on uh, the importance of customary and informal pathways uh, and some of the interesting um, uh, methods, tools and strategies that he spoke about for engaging with them. Um, I think when you look at the global justice community, the reality is that most funding is still um, overwhelmingly uh, focused on formal justice. Um, that being the case, what are your views on donors supporting interventions or, or systems outside of the, the strictly statutory uh, or formal sector. Um, Cecilia, perhaps you could respond first uh, and then Tita. Well, thank you, Ed. Um, this is really a, a question uh, to my heart. Uh, when I worked in Kunduz uh, eight years ago, I was actually a rule of law advisor. Uh, working alongside uh, of the police training done by our own police from the Netherlands and also the Marines. And uh, my experience in Kunduz was exactly about uh, how to connect uh, the formal system with the informal system. So we worked with several partners and my job was to go out every uh, day and uh, visit uh, either uh, informal groups, uh, radio studios, where we would raise uh, awareness, um, talk to uh, police training uh, trainers uh, on how to connect their training with the rest of the justice chain. So um, I, I see how important it is to connect it all. And I think uh, it's done already. Uh, uh, the big thing is now how to upscale it. And I agree fully with Masood, it's a regional thing. Uh, so uh, locally, we would see uh, we should see how it all connects together. I think what's important is that yes, it's very um, uh, difficult uh, to uh, reform and support the formal uh, justice structure, and at the same time, it's very important because uh, it also results in alignment internationally, and I think that's important for Afghanistan. Um, at the same time, uh, what I've heard yesterday was interesting. I was at a dinner at UNAMA and I talked to a young uh, Afghan and we talked about what development partners of Afghanistan could do better. And he said, uh, you all have focused on uh, individual capacity building. So many trainings for judges, for uh, lawyers, for uh, I don't know who, uh, what kind of profession. But uh, we never managed together to really invest in institutional capacity building. There are many, many reasons for that, but I think also the formal justice uh, structure suffers from that. And why is that? And I think uh, the reason is, is that everything is politicized. It's linked to personal interests. It's linked to exactly what Masood said, the, the local situation. And I think there, um, this is a question of a long breath. Uh, we can uh, only support those in the African society, locally also, but also nationally, who want to change that uh, and to professionalize and to make things more legitimate. I think that's also a keyword uh, in trying to link uh, those two worlds, the informal and the informal uh, justice. Because in the end, it's about the user. Eh? Um, I think the people-centered approach, this is something that we want to support. Um, 
I would like to leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and Tito, if I could ask for, you, for your response to the same question. Yes, indeed, very briefly, because uh, I think that both Masood and Cecilia were very much to the point on what the donors can also do. Couple of preconditions, though, uh, whether we would deal with the formal or informal justice system, it needs to go, of course, without saying that, um, you know, like, uh, there should be no human rights violations. And this applies to corruption, this applies to respect for gender rights, for instance. Uh, so whatever uh, system we rely on, uh, we need to make sure that they are compatible with what we understand as international human rights being applicable to everyone. So that is probably the first point. Then the second point is, and I leave it at that, is that um, we uh, welcome also ideas in, in terms of, and this is what I meant when I said that I come back to this point on, on civil society consultations. It would be most important to bring these points up now that, uh, you know, like that BAC, uh, that stands for British and Irish Agencies Afghanistan Group, will conduct a series of nationwide consultations and national discussions in cooperation with the Civil Society Working Committee. And uh, it is important also for the civil society to bring up these issues while we go along with the preparations for the conference. I leave it at that, thank you. Tita, thank you so much. Um, Okay, we're going to take some questions from the um, from the online audience that have been submitted, uh, and, I'll, and I'll direct these to specific panelists. Um, so we had a question for Nagina. Um, I think this is a great question. Uh, as a, a woman uh, leader in justice in Afghanistan yourself, uh, Siavash Rabari uh, has asked. Since there's such a need for greater access to justice for women in particular, how important is it to support women leaders in the justice sector? And how can we do that in the coming year? Nagina, you're, you're on mute. Thank you so much. Uh, so I think it's very important to women be in justice sector and working as a prosecutor and as a police, as a uh, judge. Because uh, you know, as, as my experience in uh, war province as a as a first female prosecutor in the history of war, uh, the day that I start work in that place, there was no, you know, cases regarding domestic violence and also uh, violence against women. But uh, when I start as a prosecutor in that place, I received many cases day by day. So it shows the trust of women to a woman because they are according to the culture and also according to the information that you know there is a big problem in a Afghan woman. They trust to women more than a man because they are feeling so friendly to uh, telling their history, their problems to a woman. So if a woman be as a in a justice sector, we see that uh, uh, in last year, 2,000 
700 cases that we resolve about domestic violence. So it shows the trust of women in the women, and also it shows that they are they are knowing about the justice system. So I think it will be very good, and also I uh, I suggest, and I think it will be better in our country for the president's suggestion that uh, and the parliament to have or hire a woman in the high council uh, of uh, Supreme Court of Afghanistan because we don't have in the nine judges in the Supreme Court of Afghanistan we don't have any women. So if there will be if there be a woman. Now, as uh, in the Supreme Court of Afghanistan, it will be great, and also it, I think, increase the trust of women, and also it increase the. Uh, uh, I'm not happy that I am saying the increase the case, uh, domestic violence cases, but uh, you know, in our country, every day we see informal justice in some province of Afghanistan. We see domestic violence against women. We see that cutting of nose of a woman in the media. So we see the stone. Um, the courts in some uh, places of Afghanistan. So it shows that uh, the current system and also the current justice system will help to decrease this, uh, decrease this, uh, you know, this cases, uh, decrease this uh, a situation for a woman. So I think uh, for a good situation and also to see uh, to show. Uh, in the current system for the men, because I think the uh, violence against women is from the men. So if there be a prosecutor, woman prosecutor, so it shows that they they help him, they fail them, and also they will uh, decrease the domestic violence. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Nagina. Um, I'd, I'd like to stay on this topic with a, a question that's been posed to Masood. Um, we have a question here, which is that um, there are some women networks in Afghanistan who um, are, are critical of um, the way in which women are treated within customary and traditional courts, uh, and they oppose the um, conciliation law, which you mentioned, the, the regulation uh, of the relationship between formal and the informal justice system for these reasons. And so I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how you um, how you reconcile your um, your point that informal justice mechanisms can be beneficial for women um, with this countervailing um, line of criticism. Uh, thank you. Ed. Uh, this is a very good question, and I think this is a question we have been struggling in Afghanistan for a very long time. Uh, very, very quickly and very simply, um, I do uh, uh, agree that the informal system generally treats um, Afghan women and children um, in not a very good way, which is uh, addressing IHL or human rights in general. But I think we also forget how Afghan women are treated in the formal system especially when they're approaching it in uh, provinces and uh, especially if they have uh, and a lot of cases as well. So it's not like uh, in one the treatment is very good and the other treatment is completely bad. The question is if women are living in such a situation under informal justice in areas where there is limited government outreach or there are no district level judges or courts. So what should those women do? In my view, the best is to engage that system, see how we can work with them in trying to bring reforms and bring them more under straight control. Uh, leaving them by completely in isolation, uh, in my view, is not the solution. We all agree that the formal justice system is the future, and that's what the state building uh, or capacity should be invested in. But at the same time, 
we heard from Amy and others that the majority of population still goes to the informal. So we cannot sweep this reality under the carpet. The question is now, how do we deal with it? Uh, there are uh, programs of, you know, how do you uh, train them? How do you expose them? How do you bring them closer to the formal justice course in these provinces to create a linkage? In my view, um, isolation and not engagement uh, has so far not uh, led to the improvement of situation women in provinces. So um, Afghan women uh, rights organization are absolutely right, but I think uh, by ignoring or in not engaging the traditional structures in Afghanistan broadly, uh, uh, in my view, we are now uh, in a stagnation when there is no bridge or relationship between the two. Um, uh, and, and this, uh, in my view, since we had a long, uh, a, a large international presence in Afghanistan for many years, which is now completely on decline, uh, and the peace deal will uh, probably bring in Taliban to a power sharing deal at, at some level. The question is how do, uh, what happens to the, uh, in the future? So in my view, engagement uh, and trying to bring improvements is, is rather the right approach than completely ignoring it uh, in spite of the challenges it has. As I said, uh, for ruler women or women in Afghanistan to approach the formal system, we also hear of harassment and other uh, issues that Afghan women face by approaching the formal system. And there are numerous cases of that as well. So the question is, uh, we need to work on both sides uh, and try to make the situation better for Afghan women, especially for poor Afghan communities, because sometimes the formal justice system is seen as something for the rich and the powerful only that it delivers, not for the common Afghan. That's why they are going. So I think it's time we sort of realistically look at this debate and then looking at completely black and white, what is good or what is bad, but that's the reality on the ground and that needs to be dealt with. Masood, thank you so much for, for that response. Um, Tita, I, I'd like to turn to you now. Um, we have a question um, from Michael Warren, um, who asks um, whether there are ways in which civil society uh, could seek to influence the discussion of justice and rule of law in relation to uh, the pledging conference. Thank you for the question and indeed yes there is because the civil society consultations will take place um, from now on until the conference uh, widely in Afghanistan so indeed there are ways in, in which uh, you will be able to participate. We feel that it is of utmost importance that the Afghan civil society can participate widely at this discussion. Um, and um, this is why we have kind of like um, engaged with the bug, like in the previous conferences to conduct the civil society uh, consultations. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tita. Um, I have a, a question that could either be uh, answered by uh, Amy or Cecilia, so perhaps I will, I will pose this one to you uh, jointly. Um, we've talked a lot about um, issues of trust, and so we have a question which is asking um, for a little bit more uh, detail on some of the, some of the underlying reasons for the, uh, for the chronic distrust in, uh, uh, in formal statutory courts amongst the public. Um, perhaps uh, Amy would like to go first and, and then Cecilia. 
Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, with a lot of the questions that we ask in these sort of surveys, it doesn't give you a roadmap that explains exactly what is driving um, a given perception or even how this perception has changed over time. So what we do is we ask a lot of similar questions about topics related to trust and perceptions of corruption to get a better sense of what people are thinking and what some of the factors are that could be driving um, low levels of trust in a given institution. Um, and in some of the additional work that we've done in Afghanistan that you'll find featured in our latest report, you'll see questions about perceptions of um, the criminal court system, for example, um, and courts in general, and um, whether or not people think that these systems are able to provide justice mm -hmm. that is fair, um, whether justice is accessible, whether they think that victims um, would be treated equally regardless of who they are and where they are in, in the system. And historically, with the data we've collected in Afghanistan, um, a lot of these findings have been fairly low. And I think it just generally speaks to um, Afghans feeling that that they can't access these systems, that these systems may be expensive. Um, having you know, this conception that if I go to this system, I already know what the outcome is going, going to be. Um, I'm not going to have a re resolution to my process. And over time, this really leads to um, a, a feeling and a fostering of- um, Thank you so much. Um, Cecilia, maybe I could turn to, to your reflections on this. Well, yes, thank you, Ed. Just uh, to add, um, well, trust in the formal uh, structure is, of course, based upon experience yeah, and perceptions that what you have seen, what happened to other citizens uh, who brought a case uh, for a formal court. And what I just also uh, indicated is that um, it's very difficult uh, for a court system to operate uh, in complete isolation of a local, more politicized context. That's, that's, that's normal. And also, let's not forget the whole security aspect. Uh, there are lots of actors in the justice chain uh, that fear, who fear for their lives. Uh, and so they're taking risk every day. And I have to say, I admire those who keep going and try to really uh, do justice. Um, I think it's a question of time. It's perhaps a cliche to say it this way, uh, but just uh, has to do with legitimacy. Legitimacy is that you are carried by society. Uh, I like very much what uh, Nagina also said about uh, the presence of women uh, in courts, uh, both as lawyers, uh, prosecutors, and also judges until the highest uh, level, Supreme Court. Uh, this also will really uh, promote just of the female parts of the population. Uh, so this is something that we really should support also as an international community. Thank you so much, Cecilia. Um, Nagina, uh, we've had a question from someone who would like a bit more information about the online system for violence against women cases, which you mentioned earlier. Perhaps you could say a little bit more of, uh, uh, about what this system uh, looks like, how it operates, is this an online system for women to raise a case? Um, some further details would be great. Thank you. And I think you're on mute. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, actually, I don't have more information about that, uh, but uh, it's ongoing. But uh, in the maybe in next month, I'm 
in the future, next future, we will have and also we will apply this online system. But uh, there is the procedure uh, that the government and also the Supreme Court and issue make it and also it will be applied in the next future. Yeah, I don't have no, that's great. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's good to know that these things are, are in progress. Um, Masood, uh, a, a question for you. Um, is lack of trust in the state the only driver of continued widespread use of customary and informal actors? Is it not the case that people regard those actors as also being more legitimate, more culturally resident? Um. I think uh, I think it's a combination of both. Um, it depends on the situation and the context where it's happening. Uh, but yes, uh, for most of the cases uh, in Afghanistan where it's intercommunal or um, the, the question of that informal justice is restorative, uh, so most uh, people find that uh, a more easier way because law enforcement has its own problem. Uh, in Afghanistan, police is not unfortunately only doing law enforcement they're also involved in anti-terrorism and other kind of combat activities so unfortunately what uh, Ms. Khalili earlier mentioned I think there are many progresses made but unfortunately Afghanistan is not in a state as a normal state we are in a you know in the middle of war uh, so but at the same time culturally uh, people know how to use it and also are able to live with the decision making most of the time from um, the Afghan president uh, or provincial governors uh, you will see that they will sanction uh, informal justice providers to resolve large-scale communal disputes or large-scale resource-based conflicts. Uh, sometimes the provincial courts are overwhelmed with the number of cases that they have to deal with. So the government usually at the subnational also we have seen numerous times that they will call upon or even we have seen judges. Uh, but this all happens quite informally, very ad hoc and case by case. Uh, where uh, where uh, such kind of decision-making takes place. One issue is, of course, um, the question of uh, trust, but this is more for uh, individual disputes. But uh, throughout Afghan sort of modern governance history, informal justice has been sort of an extension of the state to, to reduce that gap and sort of produce decision-making, which is somehow acceptable uh, to conflict parties. We should also not forget that conflict parties in Afghanistan, given with a small arms proliferation, sometimes very uh, simple disputes turn into larger violence in the local uh, villages or districts or in provinces uh, because uh, access to weapons is rather easy. Uh, so this way, uh, a simple conflict may turn into high violent, with, uh, turn into a mini civil war, if you might say so, uh, that may be caused by, and that's uh, difficult for the local law enforcement to deal with. So many times we have seen local chiefs of police, local judges uh, calling upon uh, informal justice providers to intervene in, uh, in creating ceasefires and bringing both sides to uh, uh, where the government usually provides an oversight. Great, thank you very much, um, Masood. Um, a, a final question, which I'd, I'd like to open up uh, to, to the whole panel for, for anyone to, to volunteer a response to. Um, given the, uh, the landscape of the various challenges and constraints that we see at the moment, uh, what do the panelists consider to be the top three immediate priorities for justice sector support and reform? Uh, who would like to volunteer 
a quick response to that first, and we'll try to get through as many of you as we can. <clears throat> Cecilia, thank you. I was just about to pick on someone, but please go ahead. I volunteer, thank you. Um, I think this orientation on, uh, on the citizen um, is that we turn it around uh, instead of uh, focusing on uh, structures uh, and mechanisms is that uh, the client, so to speak, is determining uh, which next action we should uh, take as an uh, international community accompanying those who are in the Afghan system trying to uh, make reforms. So that's one. And the citizen, which means uh, automatically uh, men and women, and especially those women, uh, if uh, we could follow them uh, closer and also look at short term and long term, the difference between that is that long term uh, uh, investments requires different kind of approach and different kind of means uh, versus the short term, uh, in, my, in my opinion. Great, thank you. Can I invite someone else from the panel to answer that question? Well, uh, maybe, uh, if I may, as the conference host, together with the Afghan government, I would say that uh, there is a common panacea uh, to quite many of the issues that we are facing at the moment, because rules and regulations might be very much in place, but it is the capacity building and the implementation that needs focus. There is certainly the fight against corruption, as we have heard practically now from all the panelists, uh, that is at the core of um, basically of the, of the whole conference. And then as Cecilia just put it, and so many before her in this panel is the focus on women and children. I mean, like really there, the justice system needs to focus on all the citizens and provide equal justice to all the citizens of Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think we have time for, for one more response from the panel to, to that question. So I'll leave it open as to who would like to take that on. Masood, please. Uh, I just have a, a common man perception here, not a very expert opinion. Uh, I usually find it quite amusing that whenever we are um, closing in on a, an international pledging conference that we suddenly have a, a, a surge in number of cases that comes out in media of people that needs to be convicted or prosecuted or... But usually when this conference is passed then you suddenly see that it, um, the swelling goes down and the cases are somehow not looked into. Uh, I think the only way the priority is, um, as uh, Cecilia also said, like how the client, the Afghan people, uh, I think the seeing is believing um, in how there is tangible results. So whether it's capacity building or the delivery of how cases are dealt with, uh, but it has not to be, sometimes I feel like uh, instead of focusing on how to satisfy the Afghan uh, population, sometimes we are focused on just fulfilling the pledges, uh, which should be somehow linked to the Afghan population as well. But I, I think the, the, the Afghans, I think uh, they want uh, to see action, 
which usually, as I said, as currently we have political uncertainty and issues of this nature, or you see number of cases increasing with the pledging conference, this should continue and should not stop. And, uh, and you see that, uh, that something is tangibly happening, that yes, people are uh, being answerable uh, to the Afghan people and to the legal system that uh, we should all respect as citizens. Masood, thank you, thank you very much. Um, okay, so I'd like to now run through uh, a final series of questions for, for each of our panelists. Um, we, we've talked uh, a great deal about the, the pledging conference, about donor commitments, um, but I'd like to reflect a little bit more broadly on the role of justice in the wider peace and reconciliation process. So Nagina, if I could turn to you for, for a final question. Um, in the intra-Afghan negotiations, how do you imagine the Afghan government will approach issues of justice with the Taliban? Um, and, and given your particular mandate, how will they try to ensure that, uh, that women and girls will, will also benefit from a peace settlement? Uh, thank you so much. However, there are, I think, clear voices to defend women's rights in Doha by Afghan government and also CSO representative and international pro-women rights entities. Uh, but uh, there are still substantial concerns related to the impact of Doha peace process uh, um, on our optimal treatment of women in the post-peace Afghanistan injustice system. Uh, because, you know, Emirates of Taliban has a modified version of Islam uh, for women related to justice uh, mechanism practiced practice during their uh, past regime in the Afghanistan and also in Taliban justice uh, apartheid. Uh, uh, being shown in today in lives of Afghanistan in the areas not ruled by uh, Afghanistan government and describe traditional Islam combined with customary rural practice often denying uh, women rights and their access to justice. But uh, I think Afghan Afghanistan government has a safeguard uh, to uh, to the values and principle uh, principle. Uh, uh, of Republic in the negotiation. Islam Republic, uh, uh, Islamic Republic and also uh, idea is you know kind of version of Islam that covers uh, both Republic and also Islamic ideals and dreams. Uh, so Islam jurisprudence I think is in very favor of women rights and how we were immersed of Taliban that they are talking and claim about uh, women rights, Islamic women rights that is I think kind of the definition of Islamic uh, women rights is kind of ambiguous and um, it's not so clear because we claim that our country is uh, and our laws Islam and also you know the constitution of Afghanistan and uh, it says about that our the first source of uh, the laws and the first source of uh, uh, laws in Afghanistan is, uh, you know, the laws of uh, Islam. Uh, so, uh, and also uh, the seventh, uh, the seventh article of uh, Constitution saying about, you know, uh, the treatment and also the, about the uh, treaties that Afghanistan uh, committed. Why that is not? It should be in favor of Islam, and otherwise they will not accept some uh, articles. But uh, in uh, Taliban definition about the Islamic rights uh, for women, it's kind of ambiguous, it's not clear what, what are they talking about uh, Islamic rights. 
And the other hand, I think uh, the Afghan government should have a this line about, you know, the second chapter of constitution, uh, because it's our, you know, all achievement in the past uh, 18 or 20 years ago, uh, the girl in Afghanistan, you know, day by day, they are improving. We are the prosecutor, we are judges, and also we have, uh, as you know, in concrete examination, the woman showed the, the girl got the first position in concrete examination, and also we see the improvement of women now. So I think. Uh, uh, Afghanistan government has to convince, uh, convince the sides of negotiation to not replace current universal Islam of Republic uh, with a rural traditional military version of uh, religion, uh, not in peace with the modern life and neither in reconciliation with the spirit of uh, true Islam. Thank you so much, Nagina. It's it's really hard to, to, to cut you off when you're speaking about such an important subject, but um, I'm just mindful of wanting to get through all of the rest of our panelists before we um, finish. Um, Masood, if I can turn to you with a, with a similar kind of question. So if we um, if we project ourselves into a, a, a post-peace negotiation era, um, how do you see Taliban statutory and customary providers uh, coexisting in a way that's stable, uh, in a way that helps uh, the reconciliation process? Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, 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 several things. Uh, first of all, um, the Afghan legislations are based on Sharia. So the Afghan constitution or legislations are not um, unfamiliar to Sharia. So uh, Sharia is uh, sort of a, already a key component uh, or the foundation of an, uh, that none of our laws should be in, in contradiction of that. Uh, secondly, uh, I do see that, I mean, at the moment, uh, historically also in Afghanistan, we speak a lot about formal versus informal, but even within the informal, when you look at Afghanistan, uh, people always had a choice whether they wanted to go for formal, informal, or a Sharia-based decision-making as well, historically. Uh, at the moment, uh, I would say that for a post-peace deal, um, uh, given that we have a 40-year-old conflict uh, in which a lot of atrocities, a lot of uh, personal feuds, a lot of intertribal, intercommunal, um, or interfactional uh, conflicts have taken place and a lot of uh, prejudices exist. Uh, the only uh, tool that I see, especially at local level, for reconciliation re and reintegration, um, um, I would say restorative uh, aspect of the informal justice system will be very important in creating harmony among communities and co for coexistence. Um, otherwise, um, I think um, uh, for the uh, Taliban um, uh, justice system vis-a-vis uh, -vis of the Afghan state, I think they will, this will be more done under a political settlement deal and, and an Afghan review of Afghan constitution and so on, which, which will happen, I would say, probably post a peace deal. Uh, but nonetheless, given the current context of the Afghan legislation, it is uh, based on Sharia. And as uh, Ms. Khalil Yildir mentioned, it depends on what interpretation of Islam are we looking at. Is it uh, the, a very sort of backward looking uh, and very primitive one, or do we look at it as a modern state? Uh, so I do see that, especially for reconciliation aspect, um, I, I see more informal system playing an interesting role for creating those coexistence mechanisms uh, for and for restoring um, relationship between communities, because this is already something uh, which has shown results. It does resolve disputes between intercommunities and and sort of brings it to a closure. 
so in that sense, I see uh, more role for Im informal justice and for formal state for those uh, issues which are, let's say, linked to individual um, uh, disputes that can be either going to the informal system or to the formal system for that matter. But nonetheless, um, I, I would say informal justice will have a very crucial role, especially the jirgas, uh, shuras, uh, especially in mixed population areas or areas where the conflict has been raging on for since, since especially the last 20 years or the last 18 years, especially post-2001, in which a lot of inter-atrocities uh, have been committed on both sides. And this will require healing and a lot of out of of course, settlement among local actors and local population and the state formal system will not be able to deal with each and every dispute that is taking place that has, has emerged. So therefore, uh, we need to start preparing the ground from now on. Uh, I think I don't see yet any uh, good strategy of how civil society can be doing monitoring, how our formal system is getting in shape to deal with such a post-settlement scenario and how even the informal system is being engaged to deal with such a scenario where, where, we, where we would need uh, to accommodate and, and to lead to a healing process, which will be very long and very complex. Thank Great. you. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Masood. Um, Amy, a, a final question to you. Um, We've talked a lot about various issues related to women and girls. Um, we've touched on various issues related to uh, the management of, of legal pluralism in Afghanistan. Um, but your survey is, is very wide ranging. And so I wondered if there are any other um, interesting trends, uh, sort of key priorities for reform um, that we haven't discussed so far that you'd like to mention, um, whether in terms of things you think should, should be prioritized for the peace process uh, or, or just something that's that's really interesting from a research or, or comparative perspective. Sure. Building on what we've discussed already, I think that continued support of the formal criminal justice system will be particularly important um, in light of the peace process, but also because of the prominent role that the formal criminal justice sector plays in ensuring that laws are enforced um, and that rule of law is implemented. A lot of the conversations globally around access to justice center on civil justice, um, but criminal justice is equally important. Um, in an attempt to begin exploring actual experiences of Afghans that have gone through the formal criminal justice system, we piloted a survey to a random sample of 500 male inmates in the beginning of this year. And we asked them questions about their experience from the moment of their arrest through the end of their criminal trial. And we compared the experiences of inmates that had been arrested between 2017 and 2019 uh, to inmates that had been arrested before 2017 to see what changes we would capture over time. We weren't able to interview inmates that were women, so we don't yet have data that speak to the ways that the criminal justice process varies by gender. Um, but our initial analysis from the pilot does offer a bit of hope. Although we found that due process remains weak um, and that it's still common for suspects to be mistreated um, in Afghanistan overall, we found that inmates arrested in the last three years reported that they were informed that they were under arrest, that they were given the opportunity to speak during trial, and that they were represented by a defense attorney during their primary trial at higher rates than inmates arrested before 2017. So there's more work to be done, um, but we are seeing improvements in some areas. And continued commitments to reform and strengthen the criminal justice system, I think will be crucial to sustain those improvements um, in the long term. And I think that 
Uh, to wrap up my closing remarks, a second priority would relate more generally to the need for people-centered data and analysis to better understand not only the barriers that people face in their attempts to access justice, but also how these barriers vary for different subpopulations. We've discussed women, but another subpopulation um, that we haven't discussed a lot would be poor Afghans. And the analysis that's been conducted to date is really the tip of the iceberg. Administrative data will only tell you so much about these experiences, and administrative data often entirely miss informal mechanisms that play such a prominent role in the justice process in Afghanistan. Um, so it will be important to look to data anchored in actual um, experiences of Afghans in the process of developing reforms. Great, thank, thank you so much, Amy. I wish I could uh, dig into some of those issues that you mentioned in more detail, but um, you've given us a, a great sense of some, some broader dilemmas and, and findings, so thank you. Um, Tita and Cecilia, if I could turn to, to you both now for some, some closing remarks from your perspective, um, I'd be really interested to hear um, what you've heard today from, from our Afghan colleagues, um, from Amy, from contributions we've had from, from online participants, um, which you'll take back into conversations with your counterparts in, in other governments and organizations. That might be priorities for the pledging conference. Uh, it might be things that you'll take into wider conversations on supporting the, the peace process. So Tita, perhaps, uh, perhaps I could ask you for your reflections first. Tito, I think you're on mute. I am on, on mute. Hopefully I am now uh, unmuted. Look, um, I think that this has given quite a bit of practical issues to consider. Uh, and I know that parts of the conference team are actually following this discussion. So there are a few lessons that I think that we can, we can take along. Um, first of all, you know, like I, I think that now that we are having this conference at the same time when the peace talks are kind of ongoing, presents in a sense a very historic opportunity also for the uh, rule of law sector of the conference. Um, um, I would kind of like uh, want to underline that also the lessons learned from these discussions are that uh, you know, like uh, we actually don't need less human rights as outcome of the Doha talks or outcome of the conference. We actually need more human rights and we actually need more gender rights and we actually need more human rights for all. So including women. And I think that this conference has provided quite a bit of as I said, practical ways as how to look at it in terms of capacity building and linking the formal and informal system. So thank you very much for organizing this. This, this has Not been very helpful. Thank you to you for taking part. Um, Cecilia, perhaps I could ask you for, for your final reflections and, and what you'll take away from the discussion today. Yes, uh, thank you all for all those uh, contributions. Uh, from my side, I would like uh, to take away the following is that um, better rule of law, uh, more justice is not only a subject that we discuss uh, among experts like we do today, but also amongst 
uh, other circles, as I started also in my own contribution to this conference, is that it's something that comes back in the negotiations in Doha. It's something that has to do with the whole justice uh, chain, including, for instance, the police. Uh, what is going to happen in, uh, with the police after the withdrawal of NATO? Uh, so all these uh, different pieces, they all connect, and uh, I think uh, rule of law um, is connecting all these different processes, also in Geneva, of course. What I also take to a, uh, away is uh, the focus on the African citizen uh, as an active figure of justice, but also as a victim. I think Mosut said it very uh, rightly so, is that it will take time uh, before the, the wounds are healed. And we all know that those uh, who have been through terrible experiences and are traumatized, they cannot look ahead. Uh, so it's better now to deal with that in whatever way that is good uh, for those citizens. Is it in an informal way, which is probably more flexible, or perhaps in some cases also in a formal way? We also talked today about women. I think that uh, Tita said it already and also other colleagues, uh, they need to be in our focus. And I think uh, also violence security is very much connected to promotion of rule of law. If there's no reduction in violence, uh, it will be very hard uh, to invest in formal uh, justice and also in the informal justice and enter into the process of reconciliations that we all need, I think. Um, yeah, what I take away also is that we have a lot of work to do still together. So I also would like really to appeal to, uh, to work uh, together in terms of coordination, what we do uh, diplomacy-wise, uh, collaboration with civil society, uh, with the justice system. And I really, really want to thank you, uh, OEI, Cordate, and also uh, the World Justice uh, Project to bring us together today. I think uh, that's been a very good occasion. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia, and, and thank you so much to, to all of our panelists for your time, your contributions. Um, that's it. That's all the time we have. Um, this has been uh, an incredibly rich discussion. Um, I hope we've emphasized the importance of justice as a priority for donors during the pledging conference. We've also pointed to uh, some of the really thorny and complex challenges, but also opportunities in, in terms of the broader uh, peace and reconciliation process. Um, and we've also reflected on the importance of um, politically informed, creative, uh, locally led, adaptive strategies of support and engagement on the ground. Um, I've been involved personally with, uh, with research uh, with Cordaid uh, and also with the uh, Lessons for Peace project funded by DFAT. Um, and both of those uh, areas of work really signal the importance of understanding and engaging with the full spectrum of providers, systems, uh, legal and rule of law, law norms uh, that are used in practice uh, in Afghanistan. Um, we, we have linked to that research on the event page uh, and we'll also share that via email after this meeting. Um, thank you so much to, to you, our, our audience, for joining the conversation. Um, we hope this has been enjoyable uh, and informative for, for all of you. Uh, and finally, thanks very much to our co-hosts, Cordaid and the World Justice Project. Uh, take care and goodbye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, 
find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>